0: I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturopedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturopedic.com. That's naturopedic.com. So, welcome back to Parent Talk. And we had such a robust response to our first conversation with Dr. Andy Gardner, our friend and longtime colleague, that we thought we'd share the joy by extending it this holiday season to a second episode on talking about relational health. So we're thrilled to have Dr. Andy Garner back, who's one of the leaders in the field of relational health. He brought the concept of toxic stress and discussion of adverse child events to the forefront of the pediatric profession, is now leading the way with his revision of a policy paper that's come out and revision of his book on thinking developmentally, which is in the works. So it's great to have you back, Andy.
1: Arthur, it's always great to talk to you.
0: So last time we did a pretty good look at the biology of relationships and why they're so powerful and important. So we want to devote a session here on Parent Talk to something that I think every parent alive has struggled with from time immemorial and certainly struggles with today. And that is, if you misalign, if you go out of sync, how do you repair the relationship? And in particular, common ways parents and children strain the relationship and how can they repair the relationship? How can they get back into synchrony?
1: Well, sure. I mean, I, I think um, in the last time we talked about this idea of sort of biobehavioral synchrony. So, when we talk about synchrony, what we're talking about are, are really those sort of magical moments of connection, right? Where at a biological level, the brain waves, your autonomic functions, the hormones, even your behaviors literally become linked in time. And so, this biobehavioral synchrony helps explain why emotions are contagious. So, when we talk about biobehavioral synchrony, really, talking about a bug in our biological code that allows trusted adults to sort of hack in and turn off the child's stress response. When we're engaged in synchrony, that is something that brings joy. And then when it's ruptured, that brings distress. And when then we re-engage and there's interactive repair, that brings down the stress response. And so that's why it's so important that we understand how to re-engage, right? Because we know that life happens and this is good news for parents. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a helicopter parent. You can't always be in sync. And in fact, there's data that it's actually is good to have some short-lived ruptures because that promotes distress tolerance and resilience over time. And so the point is that that positive synchrony is important because it builds trust and the attachment, but it also buffers adversity and promotes sort of uh, the distress tolerance as a parent, I think the temptation is to think that you somehow need to, you know, really discipline and teach and have lectures and that sort of thing. The truth is for young kids, they live for engagement. They live for your attention, right? And so you don't have to have negative attention. All you have to do is just basically, basically turn away for a little bit. That's enough for them to say, I don't like this feeling. I'm not going to do that anymore.
0: Yeah. I think I've always said that, uh, for young children, the currency of the realm is parental attention. That's worth That's more. far more than money, certainly far more than fame. I and mean, this is it. Now, I think sometimes there's confusion between does my child love me is different than biobehavioral synchrony. If you feel as though you're still in love with your child and they're in love with you, that does not mean that you've achieved synchrony. So how do we help parents become aware of when the misalignments occur, when they need to do something to get back in sync with their child?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's hard. And it sort of gets at this idea. You know, Claudia Gold talks about keeping your child in mind. She wrote a book about keeping your child in mind. When we're in survival mode and we're worried about all the things we're doing, well, then you're not going to notice that you're not in sync with your child, right? I think there has to be sort of an an index of suspicion there. And I think we have to step back a little bit and say, synchrony almost by definition is fleeting. Dyads are going to cycle in and out of synchrony all the time. And the important thing is to remember it's that latency to repair. It's that ability to come back and repair and get back in sync that's so important for predicting outcomes down the line. When I think about positive synchrony, I'm talking about predictability, which Allows us to deal with ambiguity, right? There's less stress because I know what's going to happen next, right? I mean, just think about a a kid playing peekaboo. Like, oh, I know what's coming next. They get all excited. Oh, here comes a face, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you know. So that predictability uh, brings joy because they feel like, God, I know what's going to happen next. So I think that's important to remember because kids will sometimes do the wrong thing joyfully, right? I mean, if you think about, you know, <laughs> a kid, you know, you're like, you set a limit, like, hey, don't play the electrical, out, and they walk over and they're like, look, I'm putting my finger there. Like, you're going to tell me no now, right? You know, what I mean, for young kids, I think that's not being willful or oppositional. They're just playing a prediction game. And the fact that they know what's going to happen next brings them joy, right? It's predictable interactions, but it's bringing mutual joy. And so I would say by definition that when you're not in sync, it's when things aren't predictable. So I think to answer your question, one, it has to be in the back of your mind. You know, I think parents will often say when their kids go off to college, they're like lost because for so long the kid was in their mind. Where are they now? Where are they at? It's almost like they're on your radar, emotional radar for so long. And now bloop, they're gone. <laughs> what happened? You know, make sure that you're having those moments. You have to be sort of keep the child in mind. Where are they at right now? What is their behavior telling me about what their emotional status is? And, and how can I understand that, validate those feelings, but then uh, help them deal with the emotions that are bigger and stronger? So
0: I would pick up on two things you said, Andy, or- really so important. And I think they speak to what we're talking about in this episode, which is how do parents really optimize that positive synchrony, reduce stress, buffer adversity. And one is that positive synchrony, the heart of an effective relationship is fluid. So it's not something you check off on your to-do list and you're done. And it's not something that stays constant over time. All of us are in relationship, right? So we all know there's ups and downs and ins and outs. It's fluid. And the second, which I think is so important, is your reference to keeping your child in mind. It's sort of like on the airplane, if there's a problem, you put your oxygen on the parent's face first, on your face first, then you are in a position to help your child. And so if you are consumed with your past stresses, your past traumas, whatever, to the point you can't be present for your child... You have to take care of yourself first in order to get to the point of optimizing positive synchrony. Even very hurt parents are going to be able to connect to their children, of course, but to optimize that, there is something to be said for the parent doing the work to get themselves in a position to be present for their child.
1: Absolutely. It's hard to teach something you don't have. And sort of taking a step back, you know, why is biobehavioral synchrony so important I would say it's because it's an integral component of building a child's affect regulation. Kids need to learn how to control their emotions over time. And the parent is the emotional container, Heather Forky likes to say. They're the ones that are able to provide predictable consolation and help the child realize it's not going to last forever. And being the emotional container is what helps kids initially Learn what affect regulation is, and then it's a moving target. And the locus moves from the parent to actually the diet back and forth. And so that's what we're talking about with biobehavioral synchrony, that if the child's upregulated and very upset on um, the parent being cool, calm, and collected can help the child calm and it's back and forth, and vice versa. And then as a the child gets older, if we've built trust in our relationship and if we've helped the child learn how to calm when they're upset, Then we can sort of do the nurturing for them to understand when you feel this way, do this. So that's that social emotional learning and helping them learn when I feel this way. I'm going to be okay. It's going to get better because I know I can go ahead and do the things that bring me joy. I can read a book. I can do some exercise and that sort of thing. In my mind, that's how I think about safe, stable and nurturing, you know, safe. You have to have. The trust and then stable means that there's repair and then nurturing people tend to think is being permissive. It's not permissive. It's it's, it's actually giving structure and helping the child learn. It's OK to feel this way, but this is what we're going to do about it. And we're going to move forward and have a growth mindset and eventually learn how to control those strong emotions. Affect regulation is sort of emotional regulation. It's it's the idea that you're allowed to have strong emotions. You're not broken because you feel a certain way. All emotions are valid. It's your memories and your brain and your history and your experience trying to warn you that either something good or something bad is going to happen. So there's there's nothing wrong with the emotion. The challenge is understanding it, what it's telling you, and then knowing how to handle it. Because particularly for young kids, we look at their behaviors, and the honest truth is most of their behavior is being driven by emotion. (laughs) Right. And so if we're just focusing on the behavior and we're just saying, stop, 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 then they get this idea that there's something wrong with them or something bad with them or something broken with them because they have all these emotions. And the message needs to be, no, this is what this emotion is. It's normal. You're allowed to feel that way. But then it's appreciating that what drives the the emotion usually are your thought patterns. Right. And so if we can change what you're thinking about change those thought patterns, we can change the emotion, then we end up changing the behavior as opposed to just saying stop. So at least I think that's the way I tend to think about it is thoughts often drive emotions, often drive behavior. If we're just focused on behavior and saying stop, we're not helping kids understand that there's an emotion that goes along with it and that's okay. But emotional regulation then is uh, being aware of that emotion knowing how it affects your behavior. And then even more, knowing that if I change my thoughts, if I distract myself with a passion, that emotion is going to go away. And then I'm going to be better in control of handling my behavior in the future.
0: And the only thing I'd add to that is I've recently learned about the concept of a lack of regulation. In other words, a lot of people have the all or known experience. In other words, they can't tolerate a range of emotions. They can't regulate them. So they either feel like a situation is completely intolerable, 100% awful, or euphoric, everything's absolutely perfect. In that sense, regulation is the ability to manage gradations of emotional experience. If you can do that, then emotions aren't frightening, they're not hurtful, they're just a a beautiful, normal part of life. And then if you feel that you can experience them that way, then you can regulate. In other words, you can live through them, you
1: can manage them, they don't manage you. Absolutely, and I think that's the thing is I think... Um, when you talked about people sort of splitting and it's all or nothing type thing, I, Mm -hmm. I think that often is because we've never told them you're allowed to feel that way. I think it's because we've always said, stop that behavior, stop that behavior. And the child gets the message, I'm not allowed to feel that way. No, you're allowed to feel that way. And it's okay to feel that way. And sometimes you're going to feel a little and sometimes you're going to feel a lot. And the challenge is knowing what that emotion is, knowing how it's affecting your behavior, and then knowing what's going to help you cope with that. And so when you have those trusted diets, when you have that adult who allows you to learn that repair is on the way. That if I'm the child, I live for my mom's attention and I get lots of it and therefore I'm thriving. But man, when she gets that phone call, you know, and she's not paying attention to me anymore. Mom can say, stop, be quiet. Or she could say, I have to take this phone call right now. This is going to be really hard. But if you go pick out a book and read it for a couple of minutes when I'm done, I'll come read with you woohoo, now I've built some distress tolerance, right? I can handle that separation for a while because I know it's coming back and then I get rewarded when she comes back again. So I think that's a a good example of how... Having those safe, stable, nurturing relationships can build distress tolerance, understand the emotion, label it. It's not going to break you. It doesn't own you. And you can handle it when you're doing the things that bring you joy. That's the essence of social emotional learning. And, and I think that's why biobehavioral synchrony is so important. And it helps us understand how to first calm and label those emotions. And then we're in a position to, to literally do some teaching. And that's what you were talking about, Arthur, that if you have adults in your life who are modeling and teaching and giving you opportunities to practice and then even more importantly celebrating that emotional intelligence when they see it emotional intelligence can be learned affect regulation can be learned it's a skill like any other skill the difference is If you're really bad at math, we give you a tutor. And if you're bad at emotions, we give you a prison cell. Right. And so the challenge (laughs) is how how do we basically it's sad, but it's really it's, it's really true. So the point is that, you know, emotional regulation can be learned. But as a society, how often do we see that put on a pedestal? Right. How often do we see emotional regulation on the evening news? You know, like someone did a great job today, hailing their emotions and nurturing that child. No, it's all conflict. Conflict is what sucks us in. It's like, you know, watching a slow motion disaster and we just can't stop looking at it. We don't do as a very good as a society, do a very good job of celebrating the modeling, the teaching and the celebrating of positive social emotional skills.
0: So this example with a phone brings to mind some questions Susan wanted us to ask. She regrets that she was unable to join us today. I know she would love this conversation, but she wanted to make sure that we had a chance to talk about specific examples of a parent misleading a child or a child causing distress to a parent, things that are normal parts of life, but sometimes it gets a little more complicated than that. A parent wants to avoid a conversation about difficult emotions with a child and may mislead or even lie to the child, and that causes friction and separation And the question is, how do you recover from a mistake like that?
1: Yeah, I think that's really, really tricky because I think there's several factors involved there. I mean, obviously, it's all about the context and it's all about the intention, right? I mean, is this really intentional to harm? Was actually intention to try and protect? And regardless, it all comes back to trust. When I talk about safe, stable and nurturing, those are almost code words for trusting Ability to repair and having structure, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, and so we need all of those, right? And if we don't have trust, there's no learning. There's, there's because I don't, I'm not sure what you're telling me is true. I'm not trying to believe it. I'm not going to learn anything from you. So it really, really starts with trust. There's a difference between like intentionally lying and misleading versus you know a fable about the tooth fairy or something like that. I mean, I think that you still have to leave room for wonder and mystery, right? And so I think in my mind, at least it comes down to intentionality. Like, is it that I'm uncomfortable with it or I don't think you can handle it? (laughs) Those are two different things, do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? But regardless, to repair the trust begins with an acknowledgement, right? There has to be an acknowledgement of the breach. There has to be an apology, a recognition, a reconciliation, and then an attempt to repair. You know, I think a lot of times, again, we say, like, well, we want our kids to do that. Well, where are they going to learn that unless we're modeling it for them? Unless we're able to step back and say, I am sorry, I got upset. I should have given myself a timeout. I should have walked away and not said anything, calmed down before I said something. I'm sorry, and I'm going to try to do better the next time. And that is modeling for them a growth mindset. It's modeling for the child that, I am willing to look inside and say, I didn't do something particularly well and I'm going to work on it. And because I care about you, I'm going to keep working on it and we're going to work on this together. That's repair, right? Repair is acknowledging that the other person's perspective was valid and that you did something that was wrong and that you're going to try and do better in the future and make things right again. Where are kids going to learn that unless we're doing that, right? And in a way, it's actually sort of relieving for parents. We can't be perfect. We're not expected to be perfect, but we are expected to be humane, (laughs) right? We are expected to own our humanity, be hopefully objective enough to acknowledge our flaws, to admit them, uh, and to say, I'm working on this and I'm sorry, and the next time I'm gonna try and do this, that's modeling for them a growth mindset and the fact that we're always on a path to hopefully becoming a better version of ourselves. If we're doing that, then hopefully that's what our kids will do too.
0: And that goes the other way, of course, too, because it turns out children are humans too, right? So- just as we err, our children make mistakes too, of course. And I think as parents, it's a little more entertaining to talk about how children make mistakes. So this example may be less stressful to hear, but let's say a child, they're struggling over food, let's say, and the parent wants them to eat some peas and the child stuffs them inside the couch cushions and says, I finished my meal. And now the child's misled the parent. Now, in our first example, we have an adult who has the ability to think about what we just discussed, conciliation, reconciliation, and talking about growth and repair. But what about the five-year-old who does this? They don't have that broad horizon to do that. Parent discovers the peas in the couch. What's the best approach to helping repair the uh, synchrony that we seek in that situation?
1: Well, I I think, again, it depends on the the child's age. And that's the it gets tricky, you know, and and how mature the child is. Certainly the uh, five year old is one where we can certainly talk about how it made me feel. I'm sorry you chose to do that. That made me sad because I trusted you. I thought that we had an agreement and now you broke that trust. And that's really hard because now I'm not sure I can trust you. So uh, let's try and do a better job next time. I understand why you did that. (laughs) You know, what I mean, I understand you don't like them you know? But when you're deceitful and trying to trick, then there's a, a lack of trust. These are really hard because it really depends on the child's developmental and cognitive skills, right? You know what I mean? The older child... You can certainly talk about those sorts of things for younger child. We still have to be the emotional container and not lose it, (laughs) right? Uh, And be able to say owning our feelings. Again, we're going to model for them. You know, I'm sorry you chose that. that, that, That's really disappointing. You know what I mean? That that's probably enough for a younger child. As as children get older, then we can start talking about the concept of trust and how that's important. And that if if I were to deceive you. That probably wouldn't make you feel very good. And it makes me feel sad, too. And then as the kids, as children get older, certainly for a young child, you're not getting an apology. <laughs> you know what I mean? But as you get older, then modeling that saying, you know, saying you're solid makes a big difference. That makes me feel better. But part of an apology is that I'm going to try and do better implicit in an apology is I have a growth mindset and the next time I'm going to try and do better and this is how. And so that those are the type of apologies we're giving. You know, I'm sorry the next time I feel that way, I'm going to try very hard to do this. And if we're doing that for our children, then hopefully they'll also learn, I'm sorry the next time I will, you know, whatever. That's the hope is apology and then growth mindset, I think is really important. They go together.
0: So as you were talking, it occurred to me that things Susan and I have talked around We haven't talked about peas in the couch ever before, but we often try to turn the solution of the problem back over to the power of the child. And so in this situation, we might say something like, I see that you put peas in the couch. Can you share some ideas with me about why you felt that was important to do that? Give the child a moment there to come up with an explanation. They were scared that we'd be angry if we said we didn't want to eat the peas, you know, whatever the reason the child has, but let them construct their scenario And then we can come to them and say, is there another way we can meet that need or address that fear besides stuffing them in the couch? And then help the child develop their own set of possibilities. That's something Susan and I talk about a lot, and I think it fits with this idea of repair. That approach gives the child a framework of trust, if you will. So inside this calm conversation with the child, the child's given a chance to explore other ways to handle the situation. And then- that gives them a chance to regulate. In other words, they have options to weigh and ideas to think about, and they feel safe to explore things with you.
1: You know, I I mean, what you're saying that reminds me of the work of Ross Green, right? Where he talks a lot about collaborative problem solving. That example is a great one for a kid (laughs) who's older. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I worry about the little kids, particularly ones that have great imaginations, because, you know, you'll say, well, how'd they get here? And they'll confabulate. They'll come up with something. Oh, well, the dog put them there or the monster did this or whatever, you know. And I think parents then sometimes get further annoyed because they think that, again, that's intentionally trying to be deceptive. Confabulation really is more a matter of, of kids having such great imaginations sometimes that because I thought it, it's just as real as if it happened. Right. Yeah. And so we have to be careful with that example you gave when you think about confabulation and how, you know, all you have to do is watch America's Funniest Home Videos each week. And there'll be some kid, you know, who's covered in flour or something and like what happened They covered with some crazy story and it was laughing, you know, I mean, but that's that's confabulation. That's the idea that I had this idea and I like that idea better than this idea. So I'm going to pick that one. Right. And so that's natural for a little kid. It, it doesn't mean that they're really trying to be intentional or oppositional. And so I think it's important for parents to understand. That's why I keep saying developmental appropriateness is really important in this game. You know what I mean where where are they in developmental spectrum? But I but I agree with you for older kids, no question, when there is a breach and there's a conflict, if we're able to stay calm and the child's able to stay calm, then we can collaborate and that's what we really want to do is work through something so it's a win-win. I mean, think about how our world would be if we were all able to stay calm and find out a win-win, you know what I mean? As opposed to just being obstructionistic and finger pointing, you know what I mean? I think that that collaborative problem-solving model is so incredibly powerful for kids because it, it's giving them the opportunity to think collaboratively, giving them to think outside the box. And they'll come up with some creative solutions that we wouldn't even dream of even better than we were thinking. And then they've owned it. They got skin in the game. They, they came up with that solution. So I think you hit on something really important there with collaborative problem-solving. But before you can get to that point, we need to be calm in order for the child to be calm. And then you have that safe space where the collaborative juices and the synchrony start flowing. And that's the magic stuff.
0: Excellent. Well, Andy, I can't tell you how grateful I am. First of all, I just love time talking with you. I know Susan regrets that she wasn't here to have the same pleasure. So thank you for joining us on Parent Talk again. And I'm really glad we had a chance to revisit the power of the relationship and to take a little deeper dive into specific situations where parents and children may misalign with each other and how do they repair and the importance of a parent having their emotional intelligence at hand when they work with their kids, knowing when they're in bio-emotional synchrony and how to restore it when it inevitably flows back and forth together and apart. So I'm really glad we had a chance to take some time and talk about these Extremely important issue, so helpful to everyone. And thank you so much again.
1: Oh, thank you. It's always great to talk to you. You know, as I'm sitting here thinking, the one thing we probably didn't mention is play. Play is an incredibly important way to repair. And so, I'm sorry to bring that, sneak that in under the wire there, but I think that um, when, when kids have things that they love to do, if you can play with them, that is mutual joy and synchrony right there. So, play is an important tool we can have to repair.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned I think play is one of the essential gifts of humanity, of life, really.
1: Yes, yes. Always great to talk to you, Arthur.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk Podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.